Well, hello, Bellingham Covenant. I'm uh, Stephen Shetterly, the Director of Local and Global Outreach here, and I have the opportunity uh, this morning to share out of God's Word with you. So I'm really happy to be able to do that. Let's dive into the scriptures that we've got, first of all. Uh, there's going to be two of them. So our primary scripture is from the book of Luke, chapter 19, uh, verses 45 and 46. Then Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, beginning with verse 1. This is what the Lord says, Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast and who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the word of the Lord. So the sermon title for today uh, is For All Nations, Bringing the Margins to the Center. And I have to apologize for that, first off, uh, because some of you may have been misled and, and tuned in today thinking that you were going to get, I don't know, like a, a multicultural tutorial on formatting documents in Microsoft Word or something. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a good multicultural Microsoft Word tutorial as much as the next guy, but that is unfortunately not what we're going to be talking about uh, today. You know what though, since, since I brought the topic up, let's go there. I mean. Not talking about Microsoft Word per se, but about margins more generally. So if you were to ask a random stranger on the street what they think about margins, in response you might get either A, a weird look, or B, a response like this. Margins are just that, that blank space around the edge of a page, and there's nothing particularly interesting about them. Their main use seems to be to keep the words on your page from spilling off onto the table, and, and maybe to give people a spot to scribble some notes about what they're reading or thinking at the time. And in this sense, margins can actually be some of the most interesting of places. What's written in the margins can give a window into what's really going on in people's minds as they interact with the text. I don't know if you think very often about biblical scribes, maybe about as often as you think about Microsoft Word formatting, but these were the dedicated folks who, who kept biblical tradition alive for many, many years before the printing press was invented by hand copying books of the Bible onto parchment. So you might imagine that these scribes were sort of like human Xerox machines, just copying text after text by hand like robots but they were also people with unique personalities. And where that comes through is, you guessed it, the margins. 
Scribes used the margins of these texts that they were copying for all sorts of things, sometimes just to, to highlight a passage for later reading, but other times for deeper ponderings. Like the fellow who slipped into existential philosophical speculation, writing in the margin of the biblical text, This is sad. Oh, little book, a day will come in truth when someone over your page will say, The hand that wrote it is no more. Sounds kind of like the life of the party there. Some of the time, though, the scribes just used the margins to vent, like the medieval equivalent of Facebook. I mean, huddled in cold, drafty rooms, hunched over, peering at texts and copying them onto blank pages day after day after day. You can hardly blame them. They would write things like this. These, these are actual marginal quotes from biblical scribes that ended up on their manuscripts, such as, quote, That's a hard page and a weary work to read it. Or, the parchment is hairy. Or, thank God, it will soon be dark. Or the very simple but relatable comment, oh my hand. So the margins are sometimes where the action is. And, and when it comes to humanity, the margins are where God tends to put much of his attention and interest and care. Scripture makes clear that God loves marginal people in a special way. And that can sound like a controversial statement, can't it? Doesn't God love everyone equally? Isn't it a bit scandalous that he would pay special attention to one particular group over another? And yet Jesus can somehow say, Blessed are you who are poor, you who hunger, you who weep, and follow it up with, Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Certainly there's some context that's needed in statements like that, but we can't just explain and contextualize and rationalize them all away. There's a scandal hiding in plain sight in the pages of our Bibles. In verse after verse, story after story, grand theme after grand theme, we can see what's been called God's preferential care for the poor and the marginalized. And Jesus' actions at the temple in the text that we just read are like a big exclamation point on that repeated refrain. So let's look at a few key points that are related to this. First of all, just some information about the temple. It was unquestionably the center of Israel's religious, cultural, and political life at the time. The temple was like a, a national cathedral, a capital building, and a national museum all rolled into one, and it was very much tied into the legitimacy of whoever was running the country at the time. That's the main reason that Herod the Great had started his extreme temple makeover project back several decades before Jesus was born. He had essentially rebuilt the temple in a bigger, grander scale, assuming that it would go a long way towards cementing his dynasty. It's also why the Romans, when they had had enough of Jewish revolts against their power, invaded Palestine in 70 AD and they went straight to the temple that Herod had built to, to just utterly destroy it so that not one stone would be left on another. It was much more than a building that was used for religious purposes. It was a symbol for Israel as a nation and her supposedly privileged place as God's chosen people. The temple was to be a city on a hill, a place that would draw the nations to God's presence, a place of justice and righteousness and peace. But over the years, since it was first established, systems had grown up around it which limited the access of certain groups to the temple. 
notably women and foreigners. People who had no real social standing, who couldn't advocate for themselves, were being excluded from participation in this central aspect of Israel's religious, social, political existence. As you probably know, the temple, as Herod had designed it, had four successively larger courts, sort of like rusty, Russian nesting dolls. The innermost of these courts, surrounding the temple edifice itself, was the court of the priests. You had to be a priest who was cleared to, to minister in the temple to go there. And then a step outward from that was the court of Israel, which was also called the court of the men. Men who were ritually pure could enter that deep into the temple complex. Further removed from that was the court of the women, which as you might guess is where Jewish women were allowed to congregate and to pray. And then finally, the outermost and largest of those courts, furthest removed from the temple itself, was the court of the Gentiles. The only place on the temple grounds where foreigners, where non-Jews, where those who were considered impure could be allowed. Well, in our scripture from today, it was in that court of the Gentiles where vendors had set up shop exchanging money, selling sacrificial animals at inflated prices to people who had traveled great distances to worship at the temple. And this courtyard, which was supposed to be for God-seekers and God-fearers from outside the people of Israel, for marginal folks who were just wanting to know what this whole Yahweh thing was about, this courtyard had become a zoo. It was not a place of prayer, not a place where an interested seeker could approach God. Instead, it had become a place of distraction and exploitation. And this seems to be a sign of what was happening on a bigger scale to the whole temple system and really to the whole society. It had lost its way. The priests running the place were mostly concerned with holding on to their own power, making sure that the system benefited them rather than those on the margins. As N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd say in their book, The New Testament and Its World, the temple had come to symbolize the injustice that characterized the society on the inside and the outside. It appeared to have rejected the vocation to be the light of the world. It was the city set on a hill, but instead of drawing to itself all the peoples of the world, it was bent on manning the barricades to keep them out. So it's in that context that Jesus in the final days of his life, shows up in Jerusalem with an entourage and a bunch of fanfare about being this Messiah King finally come to claim his throne. And what's the first place that he heads? He goes to the temple. But he doesn't go to the temple to be anointed king or to offer some priestly sacrifice or something. He goes and he starts chasing people out. As our scripture reading indicated, he starts to drive out the people who've set up shop in the court of the Gentiles, who've turned a, a holy place into a marketplace. And he does this, I believe, largely because they've created a system that ignores or actively oppresses the marginalized. And that system extends from the temple out into the rest of their society. Come on, you might say, I, I get that God wants us to care for the poor and stuff, but was that really the main reason that Jesus took this extreme step of passing judgment on the temple like he did? Wasn't it mostly just because they were, you know, buying and selling stuff on temple grounds and dishonoring God? Well, here's the deal. What does Jesus say as he's taking this very symbolic action? Or, or more to the point, what does he quote? It is written, he says. 
So he's referencing God's word. And when a, when a Bible teacher does that, you need to listen not just to the exact words that he says, but really you need to be paying attention to the, the whole passage that he's referencing. And so in a single compound sentence, Jesus brings two prophets into the discussion on his side, the two biggies, Isaiah and Jeremiah. My house will be a house of prayer, Jesus says first. And there he's calling up Isaiah 56, which I also read. Isaiah 56 in its whole context is about two key groups, eunuchs and foreigners. These are two groups who are the definition of marginal. Two groups that have good reason to question whether or not they are welcome in God's house at all, whether or not they belong. Eunuchs would have been excluded from worship at the temple. Passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus specifically referred to you know, forbidding eunuchs from entering into the temple. And yet, in Isaiah 56, we see this rather shocking passage. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give, within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the same goes for foreigners who have dedicated themselves to the Lord says Isaiah. A non-Jew would have been excluded from entering the temple, but Isaiah says this, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So this temple, which was seen by so many as sort of a national symbol for, for a single people group, Israel, it was, according to God, supposed to be a place where all nations were welcome, a place where their sacrifices and offerings would be accepted. But the temple system that had developed over time had turned into one of exclusion, one of drawing sharp lines between who's in and who's out. And that's just not going to fly in the coming kingdom of God, says Jesus. Well, okay, what about the other prophet that Jesus quotes? What about Jeremiah? So Jesus says, you have made the temple a den of robbers. That's a quote from Jeremiah 7, which was a message that God gave to the prophet Jeremiah to be proclaimed at the very gate of the temple centuries before Jesus came on the scene. So stand there at the gate and say this, God told Jeremiah. And what was the message? Essentially, it was this. Hey, Israel. Don't you think for a minute that just because you have a temple and you have some rituals that you perform there, that, that it somehow means that I, Yahweh, am just automatically going to be on your side. That's not what following me is about. Okay, that's a rough paraphrase. But then in that passage of Jeremiah 7, we see three key groups of people. So in Jeremiah 7, 5, the message to Israel is this. If you really change your ways and your actions, and you deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Stop oppressing the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So here we are again, back at the margins. Three groups that lacked power, that couldn't speak for themselves, Three groups who were prone to exploitation and oppression. Jeremiah goes on to say, if you're going to live lives of oppression, adultery, idolatry, 
then think that you can make it all better by following some prescribed religious ritual? Think again. And then in verse 7, the part that Jesus quotes, Jeremiah says, Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So Jesus, as he stands in the temple, which is the religious and cultural and political center of Jewish life, he speaks a single sentence which condemns the current system at the same time that it evokes in its hearers all kinds of thoughts about people at the margins. The poor, the fatherless, the widows, the eunuchs, the foreigners. So he's bringing the margins to the center and he's saying, what about these folks? This religious system that you've created, it's, it's worse than useless because it excludes these people. It pushes them to the edge of your society, sometimes over the edge. And so Jesus says, I've come to change it. I'm going to tear, to tear this temple down and rebuild it. And the temple that I build won't be made of rock or brick, but of living stone. The temple I build will have room for the margins. And the religious authorities, of course, can't handle this. They are shocked and threatened and scandalized. But they shouldn't be surprised. After all, Jesus is the man who has been bringing the margins to the center all along the way. He is the one who tells stories about good Samaritans, the one who touches lepers, the one who eats with tax collectors, the one who welcomes children and says crazy things like, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus is the one who tells a story about the kingdom of God that goes like this. There was once a man who prepared an incredible feast, and he invited a whole lot of guests. But those guests refused to come. They had better things to do, apparently. So the man sends out his servant with these orders. Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. It's going to be the weirdest, most scandalous guest list ever. Bring me the people who are the neediest, the sickest, the least respected, the least likely to be able to repay me. So his servant obeys, but then we find out there's still room at this wonderful banqueting table. What does the master of the banquet say? He says, get out there again, go further afield, go out into the countryside. Bring them one and all because I want my house to be full. In a way, we can see Jesus' clearing of the temple not just as a symbolic judgment on the whole system, which it was, but really as a host making room for a party that's going to happen in his house. He's kicking out the squatters and the imposters and those who don't get it. It's time to go, you guys. My friends are coming over and we need to make some space for them. So, church, here's the deal. We are the temple now. We are the new temple, the living stones, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And just like that temple in Jesus' day, our courts can get clogged with stuff that blocks our view of, of what it is that God intends the temple to be. Over the years, we can, without realizing it, become a place where the margins are forgotten rather than attended to, where those on the edges are, are pushed away rather than brought into the center. 
Soon we'll be starting a new sermon series called Room at the Table, where we will look at the different sorts of feasts that Jesus attended and, and the scandalous guests who were there with him. So we'll have a lot more time to talk about these really important issues. But right now, I just want to point out one thing, one way that churches and systems can, you know, purposefully or not, end up excluding the sorts of marginal people that God is calling to himself. I think one of the big pervasive things that blocks compassion for those at the margins is a scarcity mentality. A scarcity mentality. So it boils down to this. It's the idea that if I make room for those folks back there, then it's going to cost me something. It might mean that, that I don't get where I want to be as soon as I like. Somehow by creating space for, for these people, it'll set me back. Many of you know that I've been working for the last several months with a Christian organization called World Relief to see if we could feasibly open an office for resettling refugees here in Whatcom County. And as part of that work, I've had to do a lot of contacting various stakeholders and such, just explaining the idea, what the need is, how it would work, and so forth. And many people are, are really, really excited about it. But I also catch a huge undercurrent of this scarcity mentality that's, that's running through lots of the conversations I have. What, you want to bring refugees to Whatcom County, huh? Well, what's this going to do to our already crazy housing situation? What about the job market? What about the homeless? What about young families trying to make a living? Who's this going to hurt? Who loses? I think those kinds of questions can easily enter into our churches as well. What will happen if we start to draw these sorts of people toward the center of church life? How will that upset this wonderful system that we've created? Who's going to lose? And yet, from page one of our Bibles, we are greeted not with a scarcity mentality, but with, but with a liturgy of abundance, as Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls it. We find a God with unlimited resources, who is at the very core of his being a giver, a creator, a lover. As he speaks the universe into existence, he says again and again, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And he commands all that he has made to bear fruit and to multiply. I mean, this is the God who takes an elderly couple who's incapable of having children and he turns them into the father and mother of a whole nation. This is the God who feeds that nation later on with manna in the desert and water from a rock. This is the God who takes a few loaves and fishes and he turns them into a meal for thousands. I believe that if we begin to bring the margins into the center in our church life, if we welcome the stranger, if we make room in here for the ones out there, that we're going to see this myth of scarcity crumble. And I pray that the watching world will take note of this, will be curious about what sort of a generous, gracious God it is that we serve. There's enough. There is enough. If God has called us to welcome those at the margins, the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, the impure, what have you, then he will provide the means for us to do that. Who loses? No one. No one loses. Our God speaks galaxies into existence. He creates life out of nothing. And he has set a table for a party and he's asked that his house would be full. So, along with Jesus, let's do the work of making room for those who will come. Would you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that uh, at one point we were those on the margins, we were those on the outside, and that you invited us into the center, that somehow through your grace and through the work of your people, we were brought into your family. We were welcomed into your story. I pray that we would see that, that privilege that we have been given and not cling to it um, as, as something that is reserved just for us or just for people who look and think like us, but that it is a generous gift and that you intend it to be shared and to be spread and to be uh, for your church to be a place of welcome uh, for people on the margins. So I pray that you would help us to find tangible ways of doing that in our own lives and ways of doing that in our life as a church. And guide us in that this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.